0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: The reading this evening comes from Joshua chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. At that time, Joshua summoned the Rebunites and the Gadites and half the tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers, and he has promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God, and to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart, and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Pray, our Father, we do pray that we would understand your word, that we would love it, that we would treasure it, that we would learn to more and more with our whole hearts love you and serve you, and we pray for these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a torch night, so if you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to Head on out with whoever's leading you uh, to talk about Joshua. You guys can head out. Uh, Just a heads up, we will begin the lower elementary uh, cycle again on August 6th. That's next Sunday. Uh, So we'll start that again next week. If you you have a pre-K through third grader and would like them to do this during the sermon next week, you can get a sticker. Uh, beforehand and as you sign them in. Well, we are wrapping up our summer-long walk through the book of Joshua together. Next week will be our last and final sermon. I know I said last week that we would get through this Sunday, we would get through chapter 20 and chapter 22 and 23, but 23 and 24, the last two chapters of the book, are Joshua's final farewell addresses. So we're just going to think about those two chapters together as one chunk and one, one sermon. We might say, now zooming back out and taking a look at where we've come from, that chapters 1 through 5 of the book of Joshua was like preparing to enter the land. The people were coming up to the Jordan River and they were getting ready to enter. And then chapters 6 through 12 was entering and taking the land. Last week, we saw in one big chunk, chapters 13 and 21 uh, was dividing the land as the 12 tribes of Israel were gaining their inheritance and their place to live. And then The last three chapters, chapters 22, 23 and 24, which we'll think about today and next week as as the people are already in the land as faithfulness in the land. So before we jump just right into this crazy narrative of chapter 22, I want to swing back around to the cities of refuge from chapter 20 that we just barely mentioned last week. So together with chapter 22, chapter 20 and 22, today in setting up this theme of this week and next week of faithfulness in the land, as the people are in the land living faithfully with God, we want to think about the land. The land of God, the people of God who live in the land of God, who value or who are to value three things that are not in competition with each other. So three headings tonight. All of these things, these three things are true and, and not in competition. Thinking about the land being a land of mercy, a land of faithfulness, and a land of unity, all right? A land of mercy, faithfulness, and unity. So if you've got a Bible open in front of you, uh, flip back over two chapters before what we just heard Sophia read from, and let's start in verses 1 through 6 of Joshua 20. We read this, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent of unknowing, or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is the high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. All right. So what I've just read is the application of the teaching and the law. We've already said, or we've already just read that uh, these were the cities of, re- of refuge that were given through Moses. So these are the so-called cities of refuge from Exodus 21 and then more expansively in Numbers 35. But without a land of their own, Israel was never able to set up these cities until now. And so Joshua is saying, okay, let's get this thing done now. But why? Well, the law made distinction, just like our laws do, between murder and manslaughter. That if, like, uh, the axe head flies off of my axe while I'm chopping wood and accidentally kills someone, uh, I will be culpable of crimes, but it will be a culpability of a lesser crime than if I, like, premeditatively or intentionally killed someone. And yet, The Mosaic Law, without a system set up uh, with police officers, without defense lawyers, without prisons even, the the law knew that families of the manslaughter victims would want vengeance. Like even if the guy who had this... flying off accidental axe head or an uncontrollable ox or something that killed someone else, even if that owner that person didn't mean to do it, there is still responsibility. There is still culpability. And so the law sets up these six cities. They are set aside for the manslayer, the one who has committed this crime, to be able to live in peace without fear of like a vigilante justice mob, without fear of his own death. And yet, he still is culpable. He has ended another person's life and has thus, even if just by his own negligence, permanently affected a family, permanently affected a community, not to mention permanently affected the actual victim. There is true moral guilt here, something that today's culture more and more de-emphasizes, that if someone today commits a crime, it is merely a byproduct of the person's own uniquely difficult childhood or unique pathologies. Like, Just look at all of the movies that have recently come out of, about the bad guys or the villains being people who are just misunderstood. Uh, movies like Cruella and Malefic- Maleficent and The Joker even. But the worldview of the Bible is of actual agency, of actual culpability, of actual sin against God and against others. That there is such thing as good and evil, and our hearts are all corrupted from within with this evil. And the worldview of the Bible is that we are actually responsible for the consequences of that evil, of that sin. We are actually responsible and culpable for the just judgment of this evil called sin. So while it is good and right for modern therapists to try to absolve us of of shame that should not be ours, that can happen, especially when shame comes as a result of the sin of others that sin committed against us. It can be life-sucking and it can be soul-sucking for us to dwell in an undue burden of shame that should not be ours. That's true. And yet, a right understanding of shame can be a good thing. How's that? Do we believe this? Think about it. If I don't feel shame about my selfishness, if I don't feel shame about my anger, if I don't feel shame about the idolatry of money or of sex or of power, then I actually have no reason for, sh- for change. I actually have no reason for the transformation of my character. I actually have no reason for the gospel. I have no need of it. I have no reason or need for Christ who has come to, among other things, sprinkle or wash me clean of a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience is a good thing when we have offended a holy God. And yet, this is what Jesus has come to free us from. And so let me explain where and why these cities of refuge are, I think, one of the clearest pictures of the gospel in the entire Bible. Deuteronomy 19.3 says that clear and accessible roads were to be built to these cities of refuge. We know from sources outside the Bible that Israel would build bridges over ravines. They would uh, raise very large signs along the road posted along the road that were with big, clear letters saying refuge. Like if you're, if you're fleeing to a city of refuge, you're on the right way, keep going. Israel did not want these fugitives who were fearing for their lives to accidentally take a wrong turn or to get stuck in natural obstacles. We also know that the gates to these cities were to be unlocked. That would be a really silly and foolish thing to do, right? If a city was a way to keep people out If these city walls existed only to protect those within, but if these cities were meant to protect and welcome culpable fugitives in fear for their lives, then you didn't want the guy who's running for his life to get stuck outside, like pounding on the door, only to be caught by his pursuers just outside the gate. But we also know, based on the specific commands given several times throughout the scriptures, that if you that if you accidentally killed someone, following these instructions, following the signs of clearly marked roads, entering an open gate here of mercy was actually your only way of hope. Like, how silly would it be for someone to say, yeah, I accidentally killed someone, but your laws in these cities of refuge, they're too exclusive. There should be more ways for mercy and salvation, or I don't Agree with your understanding of mercy and salvation, where your, your, your feelings here, if that was your understanding of these cities of refuge, your feelings actually will do you no good when a mob shows up with justice on its mind. We've thought about so many times throughout the book of Joshua that God is not an emotional, out of control, vigilante, demanding death because he can't understand or can't process his own feelings. He is just and He is good to demand justice. And it is just and it is good for you to actually lean into the emotional and spiritual discomfort that your sin brings. If you are not a Christian, that might seem harsh. But I actually pray that you would be made more uncomfortable apart from the mercy of Christ. That your separation actually does bring rightful shame, rightful condemnation. We sang earlier, helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, savior, or I die. Let me hide myself in thee. The Lord Jesus being a city of refuge, welcoming all those who would just come to him. Or often we sing, other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. I have no other refuge, no other safe place Apart from you, there's a reason why the the manhunt story of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables has resonated, resonated with so many people over the past 150 years. That we all intuitively feel the law of justice being hot on our trail. And our life is just a long and terrible waiting. Sometimes maybe five years, sometimes maybe 10 or 50 years. It's just a long and terrible waiting just to be exposed just to be found out, just to be condemned. And yet the city of refuge, the refuge of Jesus, where when he says, I am the door, he doesn't just welcome us freely in, though through the guilty, he he will protect the guilty. He welcomes you freely in, though guilty, he will not just protect you, but cleanse you. He will make you innocent. When he says, I am the door, come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden. Now come to me, accept my freedom, and then go back freely living your life, free of shame, free of guilt, free of condemnation, no longer running and waiting to be exposed and condemned and found out. These cities are preparing Israel, are preparing all of God's people to be a people, to be a land of mercy. A land of welcoming hospitality to all who would, by the grace of Christ, come to know and rest in his finished work, to be a people, to be a land of kindness, of forgiving mercy, not vindictive, angry vengeance. And yet for this time, there are just these little pockets, just six little pockets within the land of Israel. We'll see see next week even more about the what, the when, the how, that all of this cannot be fully fulfilled until the coming of Christ. But now let's turn our attention to what turns into a really big ordeal at the Jordan River with a newly built altar. If God is preparing his people to cultivate a land of mercy, he also desires for them to be a people to inhabit and cultivate a land of faithfulness. So, second, a land of faithfulness. Much of what you heard Sophia read in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 22, Joshua will actually repeat in chapters 23 and 24. So we're, we're going to spend a lot more time on the themes that you heard her read uh, next week. But Joshua is about to send the tribes of Reuben, the tribes of Gad, and of half Manasseh, of East Manasseh, back across the Jordan River, outside of the land of Canaan, to the lands of their inheritance. These tribes have been in Canaan fighting with their countrymen for the past seven years. So this is a real moment. It it really may be like at the end of World War II or something. And the American units who had fought together for so many years, they had bled and fought and cried and died with each other. They're about to like leave Europe. They're about to go back to their own hometowns and cities. There's like an emotional farewell happening. It undoubtedly would have been an emotional goodbye here in chapter 22 as the first page of a new chapter of national history is, is turning. And so the heart of verses 1 through 6 of chapter 22, like the next two chapters after this, are this, that Joshua is concerned that, just like often happens in times of war, that the people have necessarily become really sober-minded, really serious. They have become very spiritually committed to the Lord, if nothing else, because their military and national success depended on it. Joshua is commanding them. He is warning them, do not lose the, like, the spiritual sobriety, the spiritual zeal that you have gained in a time of war. A time of war makes serious people. And so he's saying, when you go back across the river, remember as we talked about last week, these two and a half tribes of Reuben and Gad and uh, of East Manasseh are going across east of the Jordan River. When you go back across the river and things are finally easy, when you're now finally able to, like— plant crops, when you're able to raise your children, when you're able to eat and drink things that actually taste good, because you have finally had the time and the resources to think about things like flavor and not just calories to stay alive, will you be distracted from the right worship of God? This is his question. And so in a theme that we'll again pay more attention to next week, he says in verse 5, only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. More on this next week. But I'm not not sure that we often think about carefulness as a spiritual discipline. I think that we either kind of just, maybe as emotional people, we just kind of assume that we'll either love God or we won't. We'll either obey God or we won't. We'll either serve God or we won't. But Joshua, Joshua is saying that If the glory and law of God are not ongoingly on your mind, if you are not careful, you actually will stray from faithfulness. You must be careful. Again, come back next week and we'll think more on that theme more deeply. But now he's sending out in this like end of the wartime emotional goodbye. Reuben, Gad, East Manasseh, like, bye-bye. Have fun storming the castle. Uh, Like, we'll see you later we love you and we miss you. But in verse 9, we read that they left the land of Canaan to go to the land of Gilead, their own land. Now, just think about that. The way that the narrator describes that in verse 9, their own land, not the land of Canaan, the land of Gilead, their own land. Now, back in Numbers, when these tribes had asked Moses to remain on the east side, uh, Moses was initially furious. Because he thinks, he's assuming what they're asking is that we don't want to come into the land of Canaan. We don't want to help our countrymen take the land of Canaan. He thinks that they are not unified with the rest of the people, and he assumes that they are acting selfishly. But back in Numbers, these two and a half tribes assure Moses that they're not. They are actually unified. And the last seven years have actually shown their unity with the rest of their countrymen. Now, the rest of the biblical narrative is kind of ambiguous about whether or not these eastern tribes were actually right or wrong for wanting to stay on the east side of the river. I almost kind of think, as I'm reading this, like, why didn't you guys want to just live in the land of the inheritance, in the land of Canaan? They're never explicitly condemned for it. However, there is division, even if there is only geographic division. The Jordan Valley is this massive rift, That in these days, a huge river wound its way through. We remember, remember like in the early chapters of this book, how huge and monumental it was for Israel to be able to cross the Jordan on their way in. It was a huge moment to be able to cross this massive river. The Lord did it miraculously in those days. But now these tribes are about to slowly, likely like ford their way across the river very meticulously. It's going to take a long time. It's a huge deal. And so even if it wasn't sinful to settle on the east side of the river, we maybe could say that it wasn't wise to put such a huge natural barrier between the people of God. And so when we read that they are going to Gilead their own land, I think we are meant to anticipate the coming division, anticipate the coming disunity. Now, rather than reading the rest of the chapter, let me just get us through what happens next, beginning in verse 10. Summarizing a bit here, before crossing the river, the two and a half tribes build on the Canaan side of the Jordan River, on the west side of the Jordan River, they build a, quote, altar of imposing size, in verse 10. And then in verse 12, when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. At first reading, you might have that, like, Will Ferrell meme in your head. You're like, well, that escalated quickly. Like, like yesterday, it seemingly uh, everyone had an emotional and tear-filled goodbye. The two and a half tribes left. It was a very emotional time. And then like seemingly the next day, the two and a half tribes like do a little construction project on the banks of the river. And then the next day, everybody's ready to like push the nuclear button on them. So verses 13 and tw- through 20 tell of Israel sending not only a representative from each tribe, but also Phinehas, son of the high priest, to go and confront these eastern tribes, for building an altar. The inclusion of Phineas shows us that this is an issue of the true and right worship of God. This is a priestly domain. This is a worship domain. He is coming to confront their worship. But this group is essentially like going out like a war party. They're like riding out on their horses to tell or to deliver the terms of battle, to deliver what is happening and what is wrong here. So speaking for all of Israel, they say this war party, Phineas and the war party, say in verse 16, he says, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Now why in the world would this be rebellion? Well, because there is one altar, One altar set up at the tabernacle. We thought about and even saw a picture of a modern-day recreation of that last week. There was one altar set up at the tabernacle designated for the prescribed and the authorized sacrificial worship of Israel. The tribes were not to begin like spinning off into separate and disparate, like regional cults of their own separate and disparate worship and traditions. We might describe all of Israel as one altar, one faith, one people unified in their sacrificial worship to the Lord. And so the nine and a half other tribes say, what in the world do you guys think you are doing in now building a new and separate altar? They remind them of the time that their parents' generation, right here on the eastern side of the river, took Moabite wives and they adopted Moabite idolatry. They remind them of the sin of Achan, how disobedience to the Lord and how sin can have wide-ranging, horizontal, and for Israel, even national consequences. So they say in verse 19, but now if the land of your possession, if the, if the land to the east of the Jordan River is actually unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourself a possession against or among us. They are very clear on what they think of the eastern lands. It is not a land of the Lord's, but it is yours. But if it is really so unclean out there, if living out there is going to corrupt you so quickly, just give it all up and come back to Canaan. We'll just figure out the tribal divisions later. But they say, if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to give all that up, if you're committed to this new altar and your new non-sanctioned worship and system of sacrifice, then we will go to war. We will destroy you. And here's the thing, in these days, in this era where God had covenanted himself to a national people with actual borders, with very clear sacrificial rules and uh, mandates, where he has given a moral and civil law that is also inextricably bound up in the ceremonial law, the law of the sacrificial worship, it is actually good and necessary that these nine and a half tribes confront this unfaithfulness that they uphold the true and right worship of God. Phineas, who is here doing the confronting and the upholding, he is absolutely commended in Numbers 25 for how he confronted those who had taken Moabite wives, for those who had taken Moabite idolatry into their tents, even violently confronting them. And so there's a lesson for us here as well, for those things that are threatening to divide the church those things that are threatening to divide true and right doctrine, threatening to divide the true and right worship of God, God's people must be willing to confront it. We'll get to unity in just a second, but faithfulness and unity actually go hand in hand. For instance, many today have abandoned the historic and orthodox sexual ethic of marriage being from the beginning, the union of one man and one woman indifference and in unity, pointing to the one flesh union between Christ and his church. But then, when the worldwide church says, no, no, do not, to to adopt something different than that, to adopt same-sex marriage, to commend premarital or extramarital sexual union, to commend polyamorous unions, to commend biological transitions, all of these things would be departures. Not only from what the Bible teaches, but from what the universal and global church has always believed. It's protested that the worldwide historic church has, by just keeping the same beliefs that we've had for 2,000 years, the return criticism is that the American evangelical church has suddenly become intolerant or suddenly become exclusive. That Christians are obsessed about sex or gender. But are we? Or are we saying what Christians have always said, which is actually a beautiful but actually very mundane and natural way of understanding humanity and the world? Is it we who are obsessed with sex or the wider American culture, which is a very slim minority through worldwide uh, understanding of anthropology and throughout all of human history? And so, especially amongst Christians who have adopted these views, is it we who have departed you or is it you who have departed us? there is much to get in order within our own house another form of return criticism actually has an acute stinging weight we must not casually commend divorce as just another possible road for personal happiness and fulfillment we must not turn a blind eye to our own sexual unfaithfulness and our own lives in our relationships and in our habits to commend those roads of personal fulfillment and not others is actually arbitrary and potentially cruel However, it is actually possible to have is it? This is a question. Is it actually possible to have real, true, lasting unity without actually preserving and demanding faithfulness? Think about this question. Is it possible to have actual unity without upholding, preserving, demanding faithfulness? Without an agreed upon understanding of authority, of submission, of obedience and accountability? This is one reason, among others, why we think it's wise to have a church statement of faith, to have a covenant of fellowship for our members. That There are many, many things that Christians can agree to disagree about, but there are some certain non-negotiables for what we must agree upon to preserve our unity. Otherwise, we really will begin to spin off into our own separate and disparate cults, our own uh, separate and disparate ways of understanding God, of applying the scriptures, picking and choosing what we think is right and best, what is true and commendable. Now, this side of the cross, we no longer go to war with swords and spears, but Jesus has given his authority to confront, to urge faithfulness, and then to ultimately declare division from those who would seek to divide faithfulness, which we have done, sadly, at Christchurch for some of the reasons that I've already mentioned. The only way true unity can be preserved is to first preserve faithfulness. So again, here's the thing with these nine and a half tribes. While it seems that all of this escalated very quickly, if the two and a half Eastern tribes were doing what the rest of Israel thought they were doing, building a separate altar, a separate sacrificial system, then all of Israel was very right to confront them and even in this era of history, to enforce their faithfulness. But, if you haven't read the rest of the story, the eastern tribes weren't doing this. The eastern tribes weren't doing what the rest of Israel thought they were doing. So if this is to be a land of mercy and a land of faithfulness, it is... To be a land not of impatience, not of cynicism, not of suspicion, and not of false accusation, but it is to be a land, now thirdly and lastly, a land of unity. So the eastern tribes say in verse 22, they've just heard this, like, the, the war demands from Phineas and the rest of the representatives of all of Israel, and they respond this way in verse 22. They say, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, and let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion— Or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. They're saying, if we did, if what we did was actually rebellion, just pull out your swords and spears and just kill us all now. We deserve it. Or, second half of verse 23, If we did so, that is, built this altar to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. To which I think Phineas and the rest of the war party must have just heard them say that and they like scrunched their eyebrows and like tilted their heads and said, like what? Like why in the world would you build an altar if not to make sacrifices on it? They said, if we built this altar to offer these kinds of sacrifices on it, may the Lord have vengeance upon us. And they're like, what? What did you build it for then? Verse 24. They say, no, but we did it from fear that in time, to, in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold. The copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. So they built it on the West Bank, likely like square in the middle of the tribe of Benjamin's land, to remind the rest of Israel, the eastward-looking western tribes of Israel in the land of Canaan, that they are united to those eastern tribes in the true worship of God. That is, as the Western tribes look eastward and see this huge, oversized, but unused altar, in their vision, looking eastward, as they see this huge altar, they can look beyond these, this unused altar and see those Eastern tribes and think there are people. They'll remember their unity of common worship. And if that's for those looking eastward— they also described that they built this disproportionately big altar to be visible for their kids on the east bank looking westward. That the, that the children, their own children, would see that inoperable and disused altar and remember the true altar, to look beyond it. To ask their, their parents as they're walking along the, the Jordan River bank, Mommy, what's that big thing over there? And the moms and dads would have an opportunity to say, That, son, is a copy. A model of the real altar that stands at the tabernacle, the place where bulls and goats are slaughtered for our sin. Why? Because our selfishness, because of our lack of love, because of our hard-heartedness, and because of our pride, because we are not always careful to love the Lord our God with our whole heart. We are not always careful to keep His commandments. Because we reject the wisdom of the fruit of His knowledge, and instead look for fruit from trees of our own wisdom. We look for fruit from the trees of the world's wisdom. And because God has promised us that in the day that we eat of that, we shall surely die. But God, son, God is so good and kind. He is wise and merciful to provide a way not only for us to continue to live, but to come confidently into His presence. To come to our eternal and holy God in confidence and to know Him. But all of that, son, daughter, all of that and more happens not over there, not across the river, not at that big unused thing, but at the tabernacle. And we are lucky to have that big copy right here to remind us of those things. But in all of those things, in all of this time, in all of the motivation of building this unused altar, this copy, this model, In all of the actual time of construction, no one from the tribes of Canaan just went over and asked. No one went over like with their coffee mug. Like the the 80-year-old retired guy who just likes to go out to a construction project and he's like, hey, what you building? Like nobody from Canaan went over and did that. Like that guy went over and he was like with his coffee mug, like watching them like the hammers flying and the wood being sawed and all that stuff, and he's he's sipping his coffee, and then he sees what it's beginning to be built as. And then he says, "Uh uh-oh, and he does like a spit take, and he runs to Phineas to tattle. Suspicion, cynicism, judgment, assuming the absolute worst of his countrymen. Phineas said that the war party had come out to prevent another Achan story from replaying. But do you remember what Joshua was, was implicitly condemned for? for in immediately attacking the little uh, fortress of Ai in the midst of the Achan ordeal, what Joshua was explicitly condemned for with the deception of the Gibeonites, that they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Phinehas has jumped to conclusions with like the finger hovering over the red button, ready to just burn it all down because no one took the time to ask. Now this of course has real world like geopolitical applications. It is absolutely God's mercy and his sustaining kindness like that the US and the Soviet Union did not mutually destroy each other on so many occasions during the Cold War crises with fingers hovering over the button that would have been like really easily averted and de-escalated if someone would just had like picked up the red telephone and say, "Hey, what you guys doing over there?" All right, cool. But I think the lessons for us are far more urgent in a time in which political and cultural lines are being more distinctly drawn, the Jordan Rivers, the lines of division, which are clearer and wider, it can often be assumed that if you and I disagree about some non-essential area of conscience, then that disagreement is part of a larger package deal. That if you and I disagree about this one thing, that, that, that reveals that you and I are actually divided on a whole lot more. What makes this worse is social media, YouTube, podcasts, that if I find myself agreeing with this person on their comments on some narrow slice of politics or of culture or of theology, that then I also begin slowly inviting their voice and their influence on wider slices of politics and culture and theology that perhaps I wasn't looking for in the first place. But then, if I disagree with fellow Christians on these other non-essential slices, on things that I really didn't have much of an opinion on like six months ago, now I assume that if we have a disagreement on this narrow slice, then this is part, this reveals, part of them being on a very slippery road of compromise. Now again, there is such thing as real and actual compromise. And we should, in courage and conviction, be willing to confront that. But there is a difference In speaking the truth as love and speaking the truth in love. Which of those phrases are Paul's words from Ephesians 4? Speaking the truth as love or speaking the truth in love? He is saying speaking the truth in love in today's increasingly polarized society, which demands and rewards those who just tell it like it is. Those who aren't afraid of what other people might think. Those who aren't afraid about offending others, or being politically correct. I think we can think that the most loving thing for me to do is just speak the truth, to confront, to grab somebody's shoulders, shake them, and just speak the truth. Come on, man. Those scenarios might, from time to time, maybe a few times in your life, be warranted and wise. But this is what Phineas was doing. He's thinking, they must know that they are inviting the wrath of God upon themselves. And this is how I should love them, to tell them how they're sinning. I will speak to them the truth. But if Paul commends or commands the church to preserve its unity in Jesus, not by speaking the truth as love, but by speaking the truth in love, then our fundamental disposition changes. That the truth becomes my patient, long-suffering, Benefit of the doubt-giving means of persuasion, not just to change someone's thinking, not just to change someone's behavior, but to actually seek to change their heart, to change what they're worshiping, the the long-term gaze of their heart. Why? Because I actually love this person beyond one conversation, beyond one confrontation. Confrontation. That unlike the majority of congregations in the history of the world until just like a couple of dec- decades ago where like changing churches wasn't really much of an option, that we commit to each other for the sake of our lifetimes. Many of us will move away. See members come and go. It's, that's fine and good. But if we begin to think of each other more and more in a good way that we're stuck with each other, How does that long-term perspective change our short-term mercy? Change our short-term, even, confrontation for faithfulness? Change our love for one another? What was Phineas' response to his impatient zeal? Second half of verse 31, he says, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you, eastern tribes— have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. He says, of those who two minutes ago he was ready to push the red button on to completely destroy, he says, you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. This is a big statement Phineas just says. He says, you, because of your faithfulness to God, even if I interpreted your faithfulness as unfaithfulness, because of your humility before us, because of your humility before the Lord, you have actually delivered the rest of us delivered the rest of us, all of Israel, from judgment from God. Phineas's conclusion implies to us that what we might tell ourselves is faithful zeal, faithful confrontation, these things might actually be inviting judgment because we are dividing the unity of God, dividing the unity of the people of God from a unity that should have never been divided. Guys, be so careful. Be so careful with social media. Be so careful with the rest of the internet. There has always been false teaching out there for as long as humans have existed. There has always been division. There has always been sin. We must confront when and where confrontation is necessary. We must do it with courage and conviction. But I fear there is just so much out there that is threatening to undo us. There's so much out there that is threatening to divide us politically, culturally, theologically, that 20 years ago, I think even 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, we didn't actually care that much about, or we certainly wouldn't have argued over or divided over. Unity and faithfulness go hand in hand. I fear today many want superficial unity without any faithfulness. And that will last not very long at all. Superficial unity without faithfulness will dissipate and disintegrate. We must uphold and preserve faithfulness. But let us not demand faithfulness without first caring for the unity of God's people. We'll have plenty more to drill down more deeply for three weeks beginning two Sundays from now, after we finish the book of Joshua and thinking who we want to be as a people. A people for one another, a people for the glory of God, all of these things we wanna think slowly and deeply about. But, what I've just described, everything that we've just thought about from Joshua 22 is why we come to these tables every week. That we remind ourselves of the one loaf, the body of Jesus from whom we all have our life, our breath, our meaning, through which we have unity and peace with God. We have unity and peace with each other. That the faithfulness of Jesus, not our our faithfulness, but the faithfulness of Christ, that has brought and brought unity. Union with himself, unity, and union with one another. The mercy of Jesus has brought peace. So it's been a while since I or Kyle have encouraged this, but like if you know people's names here, if you've been around and know people's names, as they pass you along the, the aisle here, or if you're sitting near the back and you see people coming up and you know their names, would you just like, Silently in your heart, say, like, Eric, I love you. Matt, I love you. Just like individual people, I think there is much to be uh, deepened in our unity, our actual love and care for one another. And this is just a small exercise to just say, Kyle, I love you. Liz, I love you. As we are all coming to the table together, we are one. We are one altar. We are one faith. We are one people. We are one Lord, one baptism, one table. We're united to each other as we are united in Christ because of His faithfulness, because of His mercy, and because of His union, unity with the Father that He now invites us into. So as we come to the table, let's pray that God would bring deeper unity amongst His people. Our Father, we do Pray that you would give us patience. We pray that you would give us courage and conviction to confront when confrontation is needed. Help us to discern. Help us to know what is essential, what is non-essential. And over those essential things, help us not get squishy. Help us not uh, get lazy. Help us not to be fearful. We pray that we would be a people who would ongoingly care for one another, love each other well enough and courageously enough to speak hard things, to speak the truth in love. Father, we pray that by your word, your words that we are speaking to one another, your patient and um, long-suffering love for us, that this might be the model for us That our difficult conversations might have years in mind, might have a long-term perspective, not because we are unwilling to say hard things, but seeking to persuade hearts, not just behavior. Might you shape us, form us from the inside out, help us. We pray that you would use us as your people for our mutual good, to be part of the means of this inside-out formation. We pray that we would be of good to each other as we are of good to you, as we are of of living sacrifices to you and of clear communication to an unbelieving world around us of your kindness, of your patience, and of your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.ChristChurchABQ.com.